The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Trzakian. Well, welcome. I'm just getting myself adjusted in the chair here, getting ready for another session. We don't have a guest today, but yeah. uh, we've, we've had a whole bunch of guests. I don't yeah, know what we we're going to do. Have to know, talk to are, each other. Yeah, what are we going to talk about? Well, you know, <laughs> why don't we talk about cycling for a minute? I mean, the season's sort of coming to an end, at least the summer cycling season. And notice the evenings are getting shorter. So I'm enjoying getting my last bit of cycling in as I. Hit the uh, hit the trails and the roads. So, so. you're not going to drive your electric bike all winter there, Peter? No, no, I don't think so. But I'd have to get one of those bikes with the fat wheels, you know, the fat bikes. But uh, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> got to keep busy this winter. We've got to keep busy because it looks like it's going to be another one of those lockdown kind of winters given the COVID trends that we're seeing. But, uh, you know, we'll save that one for another time in terms of what the potential impacts would be. But hey, let's talk about the Energy File Vignette of the Week. Yeah, no, we, I, I thought we should highlight it. So if you're not getting the Energy File vignettes, sign up. The latest one was Decarbonization Lessons from Edison. Yeah, Thomas Edison. I mean, he's one of my favorite people in history. He's, uh, you know, frankly, I uh, idolize him as just such a tenacious inventor. But he's not only an inventor. I mean, his business foresight and savvy was really unbelievable. And we're going to have more stories around Thomas Edison because he led the transition from things like coal gas lighting to electricity and really encountered the same sorts of issues that we're seeing companies face today. But, you know, one of the strategies that he used was really interesting, and that was recognizing that Besides inventing the light bulb, I mean, Edison wasn't the only person who invented the light bulb. There was Sawyer and all sorts of others really? that came up with the light bulb. Yeah, you know, it's sort of common lore that Edison invented the light bulb. There were many, many people who came up with the filament inside a glass bulb idea. What Edison did really, though, was he was the first to successfully commercialize the light bulb. And commercializing the light bulb meant you had to think big from the beginning to the end because there was no electricity grid. There were no sockets right. in your home. There were no wires. And so he basically looked at the situation and uh, his uh, business colleagues and said, well, you know, we need to wire up the southern part of Manhattan. Why don't we start with Wall Street? Because that's where all the money is. So that's lesson number one, follow the money. And number two is, well, let's see, like we don't want to be ripping people's walls down to put wires in. That's very expensive. So, hey, why are these pipes are in the walls that carry coal gas for the lighting. Coal gas lighting was the dominant form of lighting in many of the big cities in Europe and the East Coast of uh, North America. And so he said, well, why don't we just push the wires through the pipes and uh, displace gas lights with electric lights? And so he had this whole holistic thing all the way from the coal mine to the power generator, laying of the electrical grid, which is the vignette of the week, hijacking the inv- infrastructure and uh, making the lights go on. And yeah, I, I so just to sell a light brilliance. bulb, you yeah. got to do a lot. You got to do a lot, Back in those days, yeah. you had to create an entire energy system. Exactly. Um, and your vignette made the point that decarbonization playbook using plug-and-play, that's what we've been doing up till mm-hmm. now. So, for example, you got the electric car and you can plug into the existing infrastructure. But if we're going to actually totally decarbonize, it's not going to be nearly as easy as what we've done so far. That's right. I mean, as... 
I like to think it's sort of plug and play on the ends, the bookends of the energy systems that we have. In fact, tracing all the way back to the Edison era where the electrical grid was installed. So solar and wind, unplug the coal plant, plug in the solar farm and the wind farm. Right. Existing transmission lines, everything. Existing transmission lines. So there's, you know, there's not a lot of really expensive building that goes on in between. And then electric vehicles. Well, again, it's sort of plug and play. You just plug it into the grid and away you go. For literally. now. Until we get a yeah. lot of them and there may yeah. start to be so some there, there, points. Yeah, there, yeah. There, 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 there could be uh, load issues and so on and so forth. But the real point of the Edison lesson and others is now we're getting into thinking about other systems, like, for example, hydrogen. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking about hydrogen after I read your vignette because I thought about, well, we do have the plug-and-play concept. We talked about that on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, that that can only get you so far. Maybe 20% of natural gas could be replaced that way. After that, there's this huge cost to create the hydrogen supply distribution consumption system, just like Edison did. You're going to have to create that whole system. Then I also thought, well— where is that going to start? And maybe take that lesson, like need to focus on the wealthy, most climate change motivated markets like California. We talked about, could we convert one of our pipelines to hydrogen? California would seem like the market where you'd want to do that sort of thing. Follow the money, follow the passion and intent. The Japanese are into it now. Yeah, there was uh, just news today uh that they're taking an ammonia shipment, which is, we talked about on the podcast, a way to ship hydrogen. And so these are interesting. I mean, hydrogen is nothing new. It's nothing new in the economy. It's largely been in the industrial sector, but now we're talking about bringing it into the heating world and into all sorts of other places where you use, for example, coal in the manufacturing of steel, replacing that with hydrogen and so on. But you got to create that system in between. You got to create the system. And, you know, that was Edison's genius. And it's the kind of genius that we sort of have to think about today. What infrastructure can we piggyback on? How can we minimize the infrastructure, construction burden, such that we can get the adoption rate of these sorts of things up. Because, I mean, you can't just produce more hydrogen and have it bottled up and have pipeline constraints. I think we're familiar with that around here uh, because, after all, hydrogen is just a commodity. And uh, if the price goes too low because you have too much of a glut, the price is going to go down. Right. Yeah, you need to definitely create those consumers. So we did have one interesting idea that came to us around hydrogen. And we had a a lot of great feedback, actually, from the Mm. Hydrogen Podcast. Yeah, that was a good one. One was from this Avatar program. And the Avatar program is an industry-wide leadership training and collaboration forum for young people. And it was held this summer. I think, Peter, you were part of it. It's a partnership between Beaver Drilling, the Young Pipeliners Association of Canada, and the University of Calgary. But they had this idea, because you had talked about, we'll never you know, get this off this facility built to be able to take hydrogen offshore because it took us so long just to get an LNG mm-hmm. terminal. And they had the idea, why don't we use the Coastal Link, which is the pipeline that's being built for the LNG Canada project, and move some hydrogen in it, just like we talked about, you can move some hydrogen, and then separate it out at the end. And hey, maybe we ha- can hijack that infrastructure to get a foothold in the emerging uh, export market for hydrogen fairly quickly. Yeah, you know what I love about that and the Avatar program is it gets you know, the next generation of energy leaders together to think out of the box about what we can do, how we repurpose some of our energy systems. And they came up with that idea. And I think it's uh, really intriguing. That's the kind of thinking that we need. And so we shall see. We shall see where we will go forward over the course of the next decade in terms of alternative pathways, like using more hydrogen, and how much of our existing infrastructure we can repurpose. Yeah, because that's going to be critical. Well, so talking about where we're going to go over the next decade, a lot of news was made uh, last week with BP's energy outlook for 2020. 
and they predicted that oil demand could peak in the early 2020s if it has not already peaked. And they had three scenarios that they put out, and all of them were for decline. Their business as usual wasn't much of a decline. It's kind of a a long, slow decline. So in 2050, demand would go from about 100 million barrels a day, maybe down to like low 90s. So not a huge decline over a period of 30 years. Well, let's back up for a minute. I mean, so the BP statistical review and the energy outlook is something that comes out every year. And periodically, this effectively think tank arm of BP puts out these sorts of reports, much like the IEA and others. And it's highly regarded. I've used them you know, for two decades. Mm-hmm. And their historical data is really good, too. Really There's good. two, two yeah. reports. One yeah. is history, yeah. and then one is these outlooks. Yeah. But it's the parent, BP, Beyond Petroleum, which was British Petroleum before that, has made a commitment. What was the commitment? They made it a couple weeks ago. Right. They uh, want to reduce their oil and gas production by 40% between now and 2030, and then really ramp up their investment in renewables and new energy. So BP, one of the large, storied, independent oil companies, in other words, they're in their free market, they're not state-controlled, decides that, okay, we are going to effectively, over the long term, blow down our oil and gas assets and pivot into sort of the more progressive, renewable, clean energy world going forward. So their think tank, I'll call it, comes out with a report that says oil is going to peak and then decline. Well, the cynic in me says, well, what else are they going to say? I mean, they've already made the decision to get out of the business, so it's not like they're going to show that oil consumption is going to go up because everybody's got an opinion on this thing. Right, right. They're uh, not truly uh, independent yeah. no, they're in, not in tr- that perspective. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying they're wrong. I actually, I mean, you and I have talked about peak demand for quite a while. We haven't talked about it in terms of being today. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily argue that we haven't hit peak demand. I would debate fairly vigorously some of these aggressive scenarios they've got going forward, you know, where we're down to 30 million barrels a day in 30 years. I think that that's highly unrealistic. Yeah, that, that, there is that business as usual that is a slow, slow decline. Like I said, only maybe losing 10 million barrels a day over the next 30 mm-hmm. years. But then they put forward two other scenarios, one called their rapid and mm-hmm. another one called net zero. And in the rapid, over the next 30 years, you get down to about 50 million barrels a day, so it got cut in half. And in this net zero, yeah, it's down to only about uh, 30 uh-huh. million barrels a day, so down 70% between now and 2050. And those are pretty serious. Now, when you read the report, they're assuming in those scenarios, we have a $200 carbon tax, the equivalent of a $200 carbon tax. Well, if that was the case, that would drive a lot of people away from hydrocarbons because it would make them much more expensive. And I'm not sure if, you know, if that's the right trajectory, but I definitely know it would go down a lot faster if you had those types of policies. And they even talked about, even in the developing countries, like $150 per ton type carbon tax. Uh And that policy is what helps drive down the use of fossil fuels and grows the use of alternatives in that case. I question whether 200 bucks a ton is sufficient. I'll tell you why. It's because we've already seen a $200 a ton equivalent carbon tax on oil. When the price of oil was $100 plus, relative to today, where the price of oil is 40 bucks, actually relative to when it was $50, it's about the difference, you know, give or take, is the equivalent of over a $200 a ton carbon tax. Back when the price of oil was $100 plus, and when the price of gasoline was double in some jurisdictions from where it is today, 
the most we saw was a flattening out of oil consumption. Now, I know you're, what you're going to say is, okay, well, back then, which, I mean, this isn't all that long ago. Right. This was, was really that 2012, eight years ago. Yeah. It's just not that long ago. Uh, but the point is, is that it did bend the curve of consumption for oil, but it took the equivalent of a $200 tax. It didn't really bend it down. Now, I know what you're going to say is that, okay, back in 2012, we didn't have electric vehicles. I was going to say there wasn't an alternative. Yeah. Yeah. And also it didn't stick yeah. around long enough. Like we're talking right. about decades of this type of cost, right? Like right. it was only around two, three years. It didn't mm-hmm. allow those other technologies to get established. Right. But there's no, you know, in these sort of simplistic kind of charts where everybody's got an opinion of how fast oil is going to fall or not. Let's take the rapid decline. That would argue for a very low oil price. A low oil price is completely inconsistent with people wanting to switch. Right? Yeah, what will be critical is that these other technologies are competitive. Right. Uh, now, oil is going to be burdened, though, in that case with this high carbon price. So although it may be a low commodity price, there will be an adder associated with its carbon yeah, emissions. I, I'm right? highly skeptical that you are going to see a universally global carbon tax of $200 a ton. I mean... Most countries have citizens where they start rioting when the price of gasoline goes up by a dime. Like, I, I just don't see it. Yeah, no, I, I I think you're right. If you had that type of carbon price over decades, then mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised that oil demand would be a lot lower. I don't know what the right number mm-hmm. is, but it is hard to see a coordinated effort. That said, they did have a lot of language about the fact that they believe that the world's on an unsustainable path, that the carbon budget is running out, and that will cause policymakers to get much Mm -hmm. more serious about climate change. I think the adoption and the rate at which oil demand goes down will be far more a function of how fast like the cost of batteries comes down with electric vehicles and other changes are made. Even so, I mean, we've got to replace a billion plus internal combustion engines. We're adding 80 million combustion engine vehicles a year the scrappage rate is going down. In other words, taking combustion engine vehicles out of the fleet is actually slowing down because new cars are much more reliable than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. so, you know, once you build one of these things today, it stays in the fleet for 20, 25 years. Well, let's do an update. We're going to do an update on electric cars later. But that is the reality is that the infrastructure for consuming oil has a lifespan to it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take some time to turn that fleet over. And and that will require the demand not to go down probably as fast as some of these projections. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, just what all this points to in my mind is that oil is not over. It's going to be with us for a long time. Even environmentalists will acknowledge that. So to me, we have to double down on the carbon capture solutions and those sorts of things that uh, I know we're working on in this part of the world. Let's move to California. I think we'll move to California next. And there's been a number of topics that have been in the news around California. One is the power blackouts. Now, those happened back in August, but we didn't have a chance to talk about them on the podcast. And they keep coming up in a lot of conversations. I also want to talk about the news they made around the ban on combustion engines, and maybe we can give some stats on electric car sales. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the blackouts. So the very hot weather that happened in August, and some say an over-reliance on renewable energy, are why these blackouts in California happened. A lot of people are saying these are evidence of the need for a more diverse set of generation than wind and solar. And a lot of people are saying, and that means there's going to be a bigger role for natural gas in Mm -hmm. California than maybe people had thought. Yeah, so the natural gas companies will argue, see, I told you so. 
we need more natural gas in the mix and therefore more natural gas power plants and so on. And I'm not so sure. I would have bought that argument a, a few years ago. But with large-scale storage falling in costs and pairing up with the renewables, I think that that's much more realistic going forward. And, you know, when you have a crisis like this, the inclination is not actually to revert back to the way things were. They're actually to double down on what you want the future to look like. Right. And and do you remember that California has made a very aggressive plans to reduce their emissions? They mm-hmm. want to have 100% clean energy by 2045. And they've all got all sorts of policies around mm-hmm. getting off hydrocarbons. And that's very deep in the culture of California. Sure. I think the innovation, as I said, will accelerate as a consequence of this. You're going to see more money being thrown at alternatives to the intermittency of solar and wind. And it's not necessarily a reversion back to, say, natural gas, in in my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to talk about uh, this Columbia Energy Exchange podcast. It's one I listen to often. They interviewed mm-hmm. Cheryl LaFer, who's the former chairman of FERC. And for those that aren't familiar, well, I think everyone's heard of FERC, but they regulate the interstate transmission of electricity. And she obviously knows a lot about energy systems in, in each of the states in the U.S. And she said, you know, the problem in California wasn't the solar and wind. They operated just as they were supposed to, but rather the state's failure to make sure there were other energy resources to meet peak demands especially for, obviously, air conditioning when it's hot. And she said that there was a plan in California to install a certain amount of of battery storage to offset the shutdowns they had. They had a whole bunch of natural gas-fired power plants that have been shut down over the last few years. Mm-hmm. But that investment wasn't made, and she talked about there's a bunch of regulatory uh, ambiguity in terms of who owns that decision, and that has resulted in maybe why they haven't put that storage in. And I've read other commentary as well that talks about they need to ramp up battery installations and even talk about how can we leverage all these uh, home batteries that people are putting in, because California's had those no. blackouts due to the forest fires. And uh, a lot of people have been putting batteries in, and how do we leverage that asset? Distributed generation is going to accelerate distributed storage. So I think that that's where we're headed. I mean, I I, I can certainly see a scenario whereby existing natural gas plants are allowed to operate for longer. But incrementally, I don't foresee new natural gas power plants being built as a consequence of this, which is what some people are suggesting. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing to remember about California is it's not just about climate change. I don't know if you remember back in 2015, there was this Canyon gas leak, which has been reported mm-hmm. to be the worst leak in U.S. history. And that's also turned them off from natural gas. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, more than climate, there's also the safety concerns that yeah. they have based on that incident. Well, interestingly, I'll take you back 100 and some years with back to the Edison era stuff where Edison argued vigorously that coal gas, which was still methane, it was just manufactured from gasifying coal, was dangerous and therefore you should switch to electricity because it's a lot safer. Right. So we're seeing really almost the same arguments emerge a hundred and, well, actually, what is that? I'm going to do my math, 140 years later because he commercialized the light bulb and his electrical grid back in 1882. So it's almost 140 years later, we're seeing the same sorts of arguments. The entrenched systems are unsafe, they pollute, yada, yada, yada. And so therefore we've got to go to electrification. Same thing as uh, what Edison argued. 
Right. Well, and and uh, and then you've got the climate change goal as well. Mm-hmm. So you've got those dual arguments. Let's talk about California banning the combustion engine by 2035. Now, this made a lot of news uh, last week, but it's not like the first ban. We've seen them in Europe and China, but no. I think why it made a lot of news, it's the first ban of its type in the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, I think 2035 is not unrealistic to think that electric vehicles are going to be cheaper and have the same or better utility than combustion engine cars and manufacturing in place to be able to do that. I question, though, whether a blanket ban is realistic because there are some types of internal combustion engine vehicles in really remote and rural parts that are required. So I think that you're going to see combustion engine vehicles by 2035 still serving a niche. I mean, a blanket ban seems unrealistic to me. Did you know that the government of Canada has ambitious federal targets? Because I was thinking, oh, it's the only place in the United States that has a ban. Now, no one else has a ban in Canada. But I got this from the government of Canada website Hmm. that they have a goal to get 10% zero emission vehicles by 2025, 30% by 2030, and 100% by 2040. So I don't know if they're going to get a ban to make that happen, but uh, you know, I, yeah. I don't think a lot of Canadians know that we have such aggressive plans in terms of electric vehicle yeah. adoption. Yeah, so 10%? Okay, 10% I, I think it's by important. 2025, that's uh, five years by away. Okay, so let's, let's, let's get the number. I mean, if my numbers are right, Canadians buy, I think it's 1.8 million, maybe maximum in a, in a boom year, 2 million vehicles per year. So let's use the 1.8. So 180,000 electric vehicle sales by 2025 in five years. I don't know what the recent numbers are. It's more like 2 to 3%. Is 180,000 vehicles by 2025 realistic? Mm, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, we'll see. I mean, they are gaining a lot of momentum. And, um, you know, you've got to get them into the showrooms. You've got to get people buying them. It's aggressive. I'm sure you were watching the Battery Day with Elon Musk yes, last week. And he talked about the fact that by three years or so from now, he thinks he can get an EV around $25,000 mm-hmm. and that the battery costs can come down. He's saying maybe by 2023, we have not only parity, but maybe an advantage to get an electric vehicle. Yeah. It's going to be cheaper than the combustion engine. That's going to make a big difference. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't debate Elon Musk given what he's accomplished, but I want to get back to this 10%. You know, I always like to look at the flip side. That means 90% are still internal combustion engine vehicles. And as I said earlier, every one of those that is purchased stays in the fleet, whether it's here in Canada or when it's sold used a few times and then it goes over to other parts of the world as a used vehicle, it lingers. Well, I, I wouldn't say this is going to change your view or anything, but I yeah. will say we've looked at the numbers for 2020, and I know we're only partly through the year here, but the percent of vehicles sold is actually up to close to 4% globally in 2020. And actually, the number of Vehicles sold is about the same. So, for example, we sold about 2 million electric vehicles globally last year. And this year, the projection is it's going to also be about 2 million vehicles. But the reason it's gone from that 2 to 3% to almost 4% range mm-hmm. is because of COVID, people have stopped buying okay. the other types of vehicles. So, the fact that the sales numbers for electric cars have stayed steady right. uh, through 2020 is shows that there's real so, interest in this product. It's not declining like no, other types of no, vehicles. No, and you know, in China, there's all sorts of... Uh, excitement and momentum and so on. And, uh, you know, there's no question in, in, in certain jurisdictions and countries, it's, it's it's happening. And that's why I'm not debating peak demand for oil 
whatsoever. I just think that the rate at which oil consumption falls cannot be faster than a certain point because of all these other dynamics we've talked about. Right. The substitutes are going to take time well, yeah. to replace the existing combustion. Yeah, fuel. well, I mean, and you look at sort of feedback effects. Well, let's just say the electric vehicles come in fast and furious. That tends to devalue the value of a gasoline vehicle. Well, then the gasoline vehicle gets cheaper and the consumer says, hmm, well, if a gasoline vehicle is so cheap, I'm just going to buy that one. Yeah. Except if you're in the BP scenario and you get the $200 carbon tax, then it, it will help maybe push yeah. people towards the alternative. Well, you know, carbon tax, I do believe it's an effective solution, but I don't believe that we're going to see a universal carbon tax around the world. Well, let's go back to Canada. And we talked yeah. about the Canadian government having these ambitious targets. But I also wanted to point out, if you caught in the throne speech mm. last week, there was a focus on electric cars there were two parts to it. One is make zero emission vehicles more affordable and increase charging stations so that more people in Canada buy them and we meet these goals. But the other interesting part was some words around fostering our own electric vehicle industry and yeah. our own ability to manufacture batteries. And And I thought, hey, like this is a growing area and we're looking at diversifying our economy. This should be something well, of interest. I, I mean, we're already late to the game, right? I mean, we were leaders in going from horse and buggy to automobiles, again, 120 years ago. Canada was? Uh, Canada was. Really? It's a great story. I've got a story on that coming up through my Energy File series, so stay tuned. Okay, well, uh, everyone's going to want to watch yeah, for that. Yeah, no, but uh, so, you know, why are we late to the game? Uh, so it took an announcement, I think it was yesterday, by Ford that they're going to invest $1.8 billion, finally, to go to full battery electric vehicles in Canada. And this is great news. Despite all I've been saying about the fact that uh, the oil industry is going to be around for a long time. I've always been pretty bullish owning an electric vehicle myself for almost five years about the potential for electric vehicles. And my frustration has been, well, why aren't we in the game, given our, our history and given the fact that we should be making batteries and cobalt and nickel and everything that goes into it. So this is a start. This announcement is a start, and I'm really quite excited by it. And I think this is the kind of thing that we need to feed into because it's going to create a new ecosystem of companies uh, in Canada, much as the auto industry did with, you know, a hundred and some years ago. Right. And if you caught, uh, there was also some news in the last few weeks that our energy minister in Alberta talked about a new program to think about minerals that are needed mm -hmm. for the energy transition. Yeah. So there's some exciting things happening, and uh, this is great news for yeah. uh, for Canada. Yeah. No, I mean, we've got, if you think about Canada and the transition from horse and buggy to petroleum, we did the full supply chain. So let's bring this back full circle to the beginning of the discussion. You know, we have the upfront, upstream fuel a hundred and some years ago to power the new economy. And on the back end, we're leaders also in pivoting from horse and buggy to uh, gasoline power vehicles. And so we have everything from the source to the end use. And so if you think about electric vehicles, we have everything here from source, whether it's nickel or lithium or cobalt. I mean, you can rattle them all off. Mm -hmm. We have it. Canada is a producer of almost, right. we actually really recently looked at this, of all the major materials for the energy transition, we yeah, have, we have uh, a production of right. almost all of them. Well, we talked to the Saskatchewan energy minister a few weeks ago. They have rare earth metals that go into electric motors. We've got the digital technologies. We've got the people. We've got to, re, you know, we can retool these plants. Like, what is wrong with us? Like, let's get on with it. And, and migrate 
with the rest of the world or lead the rest of the world into this area. Okay. Well, thanks for joining this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.